From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And welcome again to Open Line Monday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Very glad to be with you on this Monday. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Delighted to be joined by our Monday Open Line host, Father John Tregilio. How are you, Padre? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Uh, Those of you who are watching us on social media, whether it's uh, YouTube or Facebook, you'll notice that there is an American flag in the background today as we recall the events of uh, 9-11 some 22 years ago. You, I'm, I'm sure you remember, Father, where you were on that day. I was at EWTN. Really? Uh, Father Levis and I were recording our show. We were doing a whole new season, and we had just finished Mass, and we were going over to breakfast, and we still didn't know what had happened. Yeah. The first plane had hit, and then when we got into the studio, nobody was there, and then we stumbled upon a few people. They were crying. We thought something happened to Mother Angelica, and then... As we walked into the the room where the TV set was, we saw the second plane hit the World Trade Center, and oh, uh, you know, we were there with Mother. We we were in the chapel. Uh, they had a holy hour. Every employee that could fit in there was in there uh, for a, a holy hour of prayer, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget that uh, seeing that seeing that um, that horrible tragedy, that despicable act of terrorism, but also the the turning out and the response of of prayer uh, by so many good people. Here we are all these years later, some 22 years later, and, and, of, and of course we have always been praying for the, you know, the immediate victims. We pray for the first responders and all that, but there's also the second responders and those who, are, uh, who were there, uh, but maybe they've got survivor's guilt or PTSD of some sort. We can't forget them in our prayers either, can we? No, absolutely not. And all these people, you know, were affected by uh, in their health, psychologically, emotionally, but even physically. Uh, like you said, the ones who survived, they, yeah. you know, some people got cancer and um, you know horrible um, after effects. And uh, you know, I, I had friends in, of mine, Father Brigenti, had prisoners of his who who died in that horrible uh, oh. act of terrorism because uh, he was in New Jersey and a lot of his people worked there in New York and. I'm from Pennsylvania, so I would pass by the Shanksville uh, Memorial many times going home to Erie, and um, I've been down to the uh, memorial both in New York and at the Pentagon. Mm. Well, we can certainly take your calls on that subject or any other question that you might have about the Catholic faith by calling 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Also, if you're listening to us outside of North America, and I know that we've got listeners really literally all over the world, you can participate as well by going to 1-205-271-2985. That's a special phone number just for you folks outside of North America. 1-205-271-2985. Or you can send us an email. The address for that, openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Monday or uh, Father Tregilio in the subject line or apologetics, anything you want, so that we can make sure that we uh, 
get the right email to the right host. We're going to lead off with this question, Father, from Gary, who says, When Jesus told the good thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise, was he referring to the beatific vision? Well, certainly, uh, if you're going to go to paradise, which is heaven, then you would have the beatific vision. And, um, you know, the exact precise moment that uh, the good thief, St. Dismas, as he's often called, uh, went to heaven, we just know that Jesus said, uh, this day will be with me. So uh, it could have been the exact moment when the man died, mm-hmm. or it could have been a, sh- a short period, an hour or two or whatever, if he if he needed to any type of purgatory. But he definitely went to heaven, and uh, everyone in heaven has the beatific vision. But uh, certainly... Um, if, let's say, chronologically, the good thief died before Jesus did, he would still have to wait until for our Lord to actually have died, because that's the moment that uh, salvation took place. Gary, thanks for your question. Here's one now from Faye. I'm wondering, what is the Church's teachings about doing yoga for health benefits? I have low back pain. Yes, doing any type of exercise is okay. The problem with yoga is it, it blends some kind of spiritism and uh, um, new age and some other foreign elements Uh into it. So if you're going to do just the exercise, I would say there's certainly enough alternatives out there. You don't have to do yoga per se. Mm -hmm. You could do other types of exercise. But I think the problem is that people get a little too close. You know, it's uh, there's overlap and you don't need to do that because there's physical therapists out there who could do it without any um, connection to, to the uh, the yoga part of it. And and I'm sure there are some folks who get involved with that, perhaps even through their church or a local civic organization. They don't know anything about the, you know, the other side of yoga, right? That's right. And, and you know, I, I'm not saying that people go in this with bad intentions. They, they just don't know. It's like some people yeah. think it's just, um, you know, it's it's a lark to check your, your horoscopes out or the tarot cards or you know things yeah. like that and um you're you're going in the wrong direction and the, the devil's just you know using this as an opportunity to to mess you up so please i, I advise people don't use yoga um do physical exercise that's no. distinct from that Faye, thanks uh, so much for your question. We hope that uh, back pain uh, certainly gets better as soon as possible. One from Oliver now. When did the tradition of praying to the saints and using relics start? When did all that start? I would say since the time of the um, uh, Roman persecutions in the catacombs, because um, not only did the Christians hide there from the Romans, but that's where they celebrated uh, the Holy uh, the Holy Mass, the breaking of the bread, the, the um, Eucharistic sacrifice. Uh, not only did they not have churches built, um, but they prayed over the very spot where um, many of the martyrs had been buried. And, and, you know, either not the, necessarily where they actually died, because many of them died in the Colosseum, but where their bones were buried. And so you have the location and the veneration. You know, they, they preserved those bones and then uh, when Christianity became legalized in 313 with the Edict of Milan from the Emperor Constantine, then they were able to transport those uh, bones, those relics, uh, to churches. And they established a custom then because when um, not only did they have mass on the place where the, where the, rel- where the uh, bodies laid, but then they, when they had their own churches, then they put some of those relics of the martyrs within the stone itself, uh, what we call the altar stone. So uh, the veneration of these relics goes back to antiquity. 
Okay. And uh, Oliver, thanks so much for your question. Adam says, what is the filioque and why does it matter? <laughs> okay, well, uh, it's uh, one of the processions from the Holy Trinity. It's in our creed. Um, we, we profess that we believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque is the Latin uh, filio, meaning a son, que, and so it's from the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and um, the Eastern Orthodox, um, you know, are, have some problems with that. They they insist that was an insertion, but uh, Catholics, uh, we have no problem with it because we're not in any way taking away from the full divinity of the Holy uh, Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, all three persons are equal. They share the same divine intellect, same divine will. Mm. It's three persons, but one God. But in terms of the processions, we say the Son proceeds from the Father, because that's the nature of the term, Father and Son. And then the mutual love of the Father and Son, we say there's how the Holy Spirit proceeds from that, but that doesn't make him any less. He's equal uh, to both uh, the other two. Very good. And uh, this question then from Lane, um, why do people need to be baptized? Because Jesus said so. I mean, that's the bottom. That's the easiest reason. Yeah. He said, unless you are uh, born again of water and the Spirit. And then he commanded, uh, he didn't suggest, he commanded the apostles uh, to go and baptize all the nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism makes us a child of God. Baptism washes away original sin. Baptism uh, also personally applies to us uh, the the fruits and effects of what Jesus did for us on Good Friday. And it infuses in us sanctifying grace. And that's the means by which we can go to heaven. So baptism is not something that's just nice or optional. It is uh, um, absolutely necessary. But we do have three types or forms of baptism. The most familiar is baptism by water. We also have baptism by blood when somebody dies for the faith before they're actually physically baptized. And then we have a baptism of desire, where a person would have gotten baptized, but did not. Um, they were prevented because of any number of things. Well, we want to thank you very much for that, Father, and, and also thank Gary, Fay, Oliver, Adam, and Lane for some great questions. I'm glad we could uh, tackle those at the start of the show. Hey, phone lines are open for you right now if you have a question for Father. And that number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, calls are coming in right now for Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. If you've got a question for Father, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. 
You know, EWTN Radio has been bringing you the Holy Rosary twice each day for over 25 years. You can tune in every morning, 5.30 Eastern for Mother Angelica, and every evening at 9.30 Eastern for Father Benedict Groeschel. What a great way to bookend your day, only on EWTN Radio. We're going to get to the phones in just a moment. If you've got a call, we've got a couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Joy has a quick question here, Father. Joy says, why do Catholics have infant baptism? We have infant baptism for the very same reason that someone would want their child who's born to receive their full citizenship. Uh, they get the benefits, uh, the privileges. They obviously don't have the same obligations because, you know, they they can't they don't have to pay taxes. They can't be drafted, um, but they get the benefits, the privileges. They get. I mean, a baby gets to have uh, a passport, you know, as well. So, uh, a baptism for an infant first of all makes them a child of God, washes away original sin, infuses the um, sanctifying grace, indwelling of the Holy Trinity. And it's something you wouldn't want to deny to a child. Now, I know people have this bizarre idea of, well, why don't we wait and let them decide for themselves? Well, why don't you wait and let them decide for themselves if they want to be a citizen? Why don't you wait and decide for, let them decide what name? I mean, why call them Joe or Fred or John? No, no, just call him kid. And then, you know, he could decide for himself. No, you say, if you want to change your name, you can go to court and do that. If you want to change uh, your, your citizenship, you can do that. Uh, we give them the faith, we give them a, an identity, but also it's not just uh, a legal thing. Like I said, it's it's life-giving. It's making them a child of God. It's um, giving them sanctifying grace. And we read in the scriptures that whole families uh, were baptized, not just mom and dad, but the whole family. So we've been doing infant baptism uh, from day one, and it's something that you would want your child to have. I mean, wouldn't you want your kid to have food water, shelter. Of course you would. And by giving them uh, baptism, it's the gateway to the other sacraments. Okay, very good. And uh, one more here before we go to the phones. This is from Ronald. What is the difference between dogma and doctrine? Okay, it's a fine line, and and some theologians still (laughs) argue about it, but technically speaking, dogma is something very solemnly um, pronounced by by the church usually in an extraordinary fashion, uh-huh. like an ex just um, definition from the Pope, like when Pius IX defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1854, or when Pope Pius XII defined the dogma of the Assumption in 1950. Uh, you also have the, the Council of Nicaea solemnly defining the dogma of Jesus, um, the Son, being of the same substance, uh, consubstantial with the Father. Doctrine... Uh, is not as solemn in that regard, but is still considered infallible teaching. So we have the doctrine of of um, you know, um, the real presence of Christ, uh, a doctrine of transubstantiation. So dogma is just something that is, is doesn't happen as often, mm-hmm. but it has the same weight as doctrine. But there are some other doctrines which um, are you know we have theological conclusions, we have theological um, opinions. Um, anything that flows directly from dogma and doctrine is certainly considered true. Um, so sometimes they people will use two inter um, you know interrelatedly, but uh, I, I like to save dogma for those very special pronouncements. And yet, 
all doctrine is considered uh, revealed and part of, of, of divine faith. Very good. Uh, Ronald, thanks so much for your email. By the way, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. If you're wanting to write to this show, then you want to put Monday in the subject line. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Cece, a first-time caller from Los Angeles, listening today on the EWTN app. Hello, Cece. What's on your mind today? Oh, uh, good afternoon. Uh, I wanted to have Father explain a little bit more about the instinction. Uh, it started at our church recently, and I haven't uh, participated because they've been only letting the Eucharistic ministers uh, serve instead of the priests serving that. And I, I understand it's something from years ago, but maybe Father could uh, enlighten me a little bit. Okay. Okay, well, the practice of intinction, I think that's what she was asking yes, about. Yes, yes. Uh, that's where the consecrated sacred host is dipped in the chalice containing the precious blood, and then uh, the person must receive it, obviously, uh, in the mouth, on the tongue. You cannot receive it in the hand mm-hmm. in that fashion. The Eastern Christian, the Eastern Catholic, the Eastern Orthodox always do it that way. They've always been using intinction. In the Latin Roman rite, um, you know, uh, it's something that's optional, but it's a way in which someone can receive both species. Um, I have not heard uh, any regulations that really extend that privilege to ex- uh, lay extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Mm. Uh, typically, it's the priest or deacon who would do uh, intinction. Um, obviously, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion uh, lay people are uh, allowed if they're delegated by the bishop and the pastor uh, to help with the giving of Holy Communion, whether it's the sacred host or the chalice. But intinction itself, I think, was originally meant just for those who are ordained um, because of of, of numerous uh, um, issues of yeah. you know the possibility of spillage, and uh-huh. also that this is not just something that that is is uh, nice. Um, but if you I would ask the priest why it is that he and the deacons are not doing that. Yeah. Um, I know some people, they, they don't, you know, they, they don't like it because they can't receive communion in the hand. Mm-hmm. Um, there's places where they do both. Um, you know, it, I think it was something that was great, during, especially during the COVID, uh, because uh, people were not allowed to receive from the chalice um, because they're afraid of contagion. Well, this is one way that prevented uh, people from getting uh, infected, you know, because if you were the one who was doing the intincting, the dipping, was uh-huh. the sacred minister, not the recipient. We don't have people come up and take the host and then intink themselves. No, they have to receive no. it. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Cece? Yes. Thank you, Father. I, I understand. I'm, I'm, uh, just, I will ask some more questions. I appreciate your suggestion. Thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Monday with Father John Tregilio here on EWTN. Let's go to David now in Oklahoma City listening on iHeartRadio. David, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, Father. Hi. My, my question is, as I was raised as a Baptist all, all my life and read the King James Bible and memorized it, grew up with it and converted to the faith about 20 years ago. And my question is, I have a uh, 
an updated version that has all the deuterocanonicals in it, and even some the church would consider apocrypha. And I enjoy reading from it. It's familiar all my life. I'm familiar with Catholic Bibles and all the notes that go along. This one has no notes whatsoever. I enjoy the format of it. Am I uh, violating any kind of canon law code or any kind of a moral situation with the church by reading from that? Just I love it and familiar with it. Or yeah, um, you're, you by no means are you forbidden to uh, use the King James Bible for private study or even private prayer. Um, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, whom nobody would ever accuse of not being Catholic, <laughs> <laughs> he used the New English Bible for his personal prayer, huh. but obviously um, the New American Bible is the only one we can use uh, in the United States and Canada mm. for uh, the sacraments and especially for uh, a Mass, whether it's daily Mass or weekly Mass. But I say to the seminarians, you know, be familiar with the other translations, the other versions. You've got the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, you have the Revised Standard Version, the Protestant Edition, which would then have the Apocrypha, as you mentioned, with the King James Bible. I know I have a couple of priest friends who were former Anglican priests, and, uh -huh. you know, they were very comfortable uh, with the King James Bible. Um, some of them did not feel that comfortable with the Douay Reims. But, yes, you can use it. You can pray with it. Um, I would certainly want you also to have a Catholic version, whether it's the King, or the, whether it's the um, Jerusalem Bible, Revised Standard Edition, Catholic Edition, or the New American Bible. I personally like the RSVCE, Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, because I think the translation's a little bit better. And then you've got the old-time classic, the, the Vulgate, the Latin yeah. one that uh, St. Jerome did. But, yes, you don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to hide it. You, you can keep that book and, and use that Bible. But I would also want, hope that you would have a, a, a Catholic version uh, handy as well. James, thanks so much for your call today. It's Open Line Monday here with Father John Tregilio on EWTN. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. An excellent time to call while we do have lines open, 833-288-3986. Here's a question from Vern, Father. Can I use the Old Testament saints as examples of people who were saved even though they never knew Jesus? Yeah, you. I mean, you, this is a good. Uh, that's a good question because uh, the church solemnly teaches us that you know Jesus is the only way to salvation, mm. and His church. And there are people who were not uh, capable of knowing about Jesus or His church because they they were born before Jesus came. Or we've got people today, uh, you know, who were born and raised in, in a non-Christian um, culture and environment, and they have not yet. It, the gospel has not yet been preached to them. They, you know, you could say, well, they sh they could have known about it through the uh, um, internet or whatever. You know, well, you you need to have someone introduce you to the faith. Uh, that's why Jesus sent them out. That's why we have a, a missionary evangelizing component to our to our faith. So yes, uh, if if it's through no fault of their own, someone has not consciously, deliberately, uh, purposely uh, rejected Christ in His church. They are not going to be culpable for that. So we believe, you know, the, that the Old Testament uh, heroes are certainly in heaven. In fact, in the Byzantine Church, the, in the Eastern Catholic Church, as well as the Eastern Orthodox, they actually have feast days celebrating the feast of Saint Adam and Eve, Saint Abraham, Saint Moses. Uh, in, in the Latin rite, uh, we certainly consider them saints. We just don't necessarily have a particular day assigned to them, but. 
yes, uh, those people were waiting uh, in the, um, the hell of the dead. They were not in the hell of the damned but uh, or limbo. And, you know, the first ones that we believe Jesus let loose are all those holy people, because Adam and Eve had to wait the longest, yeah. but so did St. Joseph. I mean, he, sure. he was probably waited the shortest, but, he, you know, uh, he couldn't get to heaven yet either until Jesus uh, died for our sins. Thank you, Father, and uh, thank you, Vern, for your question. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address openline at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll talk with Al in Yakima, Washington. A couple lines open for you as well. And if you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Monday with Father John on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our phone number, if you have a question for Father John Tregilio, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Our friends in Michigan need to hear from you this week as well. Ave Maria Radio in Michigan, airing their fall membership drive all this week. If you're listening to us in Ann Arbor or Detroit or Saginaw or Bay City or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Al in Yakima, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Al. Happy Monday. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Happy Monday. Um, Thank you. So my, my question is, I don't know if uh, it's right or wrong, but if I recall correctly, a book called The Masses in 382 put the Bible together, uh, I think it was a bishop in Rome, um, if, 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 a, if a pope put the Bible together, then what scriptures do, or, or how do they follow the Bible, or what Bible do they follow, if they follow any Bible, the Orthodox Church? Okay. Um, <clears throat> Did you get that, uh, Father? Yeah, I think he's talking about the the um, the canon of Scripture. Yes. Um, you know, because the Pope Damasus, he's absolutely correct, is the one who um, used Saint uh, Jerome to translate the the Bible. He translated the Old Testament, uh, both the Hebrew and Greek, the Greek Septuagint, and the Hebrew, and then the the New Testament that was written first in Greek, and then put them all together in one volume uh, and in, a, in one language, the Latin uh, Vulgate, the common tongue. Um, and it was um, in the 300s that the canon of Scripture was set for, for the, the Catholic Church. Um, the, we have the 46 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, especially since the, the time of the schism uh, in the 11th century when uh, Constantinople broke from Rome, um, you've got even with in Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, further divisions because then uh, Moscow is separate from Constantinople, and you have different um, autocephalous churches where each patriarchate is considered uh, equal uh, to the other. Um, in many Orthodox um, circles, they've got some extra books, uh, like for the Book of um, uh, Third and Four Maccabees, mm -hmm. uh, the Book of Enoch. Um, these are not 
um, treated in the same way as the other canonical books, but they're in uh, their Bible, but they don't use them uh, in, in, in the uh, Divine Liturgy. Um, each one, I mean, you can find a different group. You have old school Orthodox, or what they call old calendars, who would be more um, restrictive on there, some that are would be more inclusive in terms of those particular books, but they don't have the same um, structure uh, because they don't have, um, we as we do in the Catholic Church, the supreme uh, head of the church being the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. Um, they only accept the first seven ecumenical councils. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a little bit more fluid in that regard. Uh, they don't have a, a very strict canon like, like we would, but they would certainly, they have the those um, 46 books of the Old Testament, they have the 27 that we do, they just have a couple extra that they put uh, sort of in, in the in the back. Uh, Mar- uh, Al, is that helpful for you? Yeah, but in a sense, it's like if the Roman Catholic Church decided uh, we're going to take, you know, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're not going to take Judas or Peter's Gospel, um, how is it that they, the Orthodox accept what the Roman Catholics said in the terms of following not those other books, like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of uh, Judas or or Judah? Um, because I, I, I still, you know, they don't follow what the Pope says in, in, in all structure of the Catholic Church, of the Roman Church. Okay. Okay, well, it's true. They're not going to accept all of the the uh, jurisdictional and theological um, aspects of the Catholic Church, but they certainly recognize the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those other Gospels uh, are, are not considered uh, inspired by the Orthodox, so you will not see uh, the Gospel of Thomas uh, in, in their version of the New Testament. Uh, those other books I mentioned... Uh, were considered, you know, um, uh, not uh, duro-canonical okay. in, in our standpoint, but uh, certainly like the Book of Enoch, you'll, you'll find some of those in some old Latin or, or old um, English translations uh, of the Catholic Bible in the back, not considered mm. uh, as uh, canonical, but I've seen uh, old Bibles that had the Book of Enoch in, in, the bo- in the back there. Really? But the ones that he mentioned... Even the Orthodox would not consider, there's only four Gospels, uh, and that's it. Okay. Al, thanks so much for your call today. It's uh, Open Line Monday with Father John here on EWTN. Let's go to Dan now, a first-time caller in uh, Southern Illinois, listening on Covenant Network. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I just had a quick follow-up question. I would uh, always thought of you know people like Moses and Abraham being in heaven, like when, uh, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, and was visited by Moses and Elijah. Uh, this is in response to a previous caller's question, and the answer to the question was that uh, the, the saints of the Old Testament were in the hell of the dead. Uh, I just wanted to ask them if, during the transfiguration, they were pulled out of the hell of the dead to <laughs> meet with Jesus on the mountain? Well, that's a, that's a good, uh, uh, good question. Um, you make a good uh, investigator. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, it's true that, you know, Moses and Elijah were there at the Transfiguration. They appeared. They disappeared. Um, but 
you know, they, no one could be in heaven except God and the angels. No human being could be in heaven until Jesus literally died for us. So um, Moses and Elijah, as well as Adam and Eve and all the, all the rest of the good, uh, good people, had to wait. Now, Moses and Elijah, even if they were in uh, this limbo or hell of the dead, uh, it was a, a, a f physical phenomenon. Uh, there was not their physical bodies, as St. Thomas Aquinas would tell us. That's, there were like apparitions. Um, and so they were visible uh, to uh, Peter, James, and John. But uh, that's the same way as saying, you know, when um, there's apparitions uh, today, someone sees a saint, uh, that's not their physical body per se. And being on Mount Tabor is not the same as being in heaven. So mm. uh, certainly they could do that and still remain where they were waiting to get into heaven. Dan, great question. Uh, thanks so much for your call from Southern Illinois. It's uh, Open Line Monday here with Father John on EWTN Radio. Amy is calling in from Thousand Oaks, California, first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Amy, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, good afternoon. I just was wondering with all of the recent legalization of the recreational use of marijuana. What is the church's position on having, let's say, an edible? Is that comparable to having a glass of wine, which, by the way, alcohol does not agree with me. So I just wanted to know if I were to do that, am I in trouble? Yes. Um, the church is still considers that uh, a dangerous substance um, because not only um, this issue of you know legality, um, but the fact that it impairs your judgment, um, and although alcohol can do the same thing, um, and people can abuse alcohol, they can become addicts and alcoholics, the thing with marijuana is that it's considered a gateway uh, drug, and people can then proceed uh, to other um, different lo levels and, and dosages, and it's not, um, I mean, certainly people, I think, can use it uh, if it's prescribed by a doctor for serious um, things like I know people who have um, um, eye problems, um, glaucoma and other things like that where conventional medicine wasn't working, their doctor could prescribe it. But this um, recreational use I think is dangerous because um, I've talked to many doctors from the Catholic Medical Association who say just from a purely medical standpoint and, and, and not just ethical but medical that uh, marijuana uh, has a lot of side effects and it's more dangerous uh in terms of its addictiveness in the body and uh it's it leaves people uh, poorly uh, able to to make good judgments and we see the effects of how many people now are using uh marijuana and the consequences they may not be um you know seeing it right away uh so the church is still not uh endorsing the, the recreational use of it if it's used at all, it has to be under strict uh, medical supervision. Amy, thanks so much for your call today from Thousand Oaks. Good to hear from you. Don't forget to check out uh, Women of Grace with John Ed Williams tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, tomorrow, John Ed teaches about prayer and how important it is that we ask God for His will to be done. Check it out, 11 a.m. Eastern, right here, only here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Irene in Bellevue, Nebraska, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Irene, what's on your mind today? Thank you, Father John. Um, I have a couple of questions. 
My first one being is, I don't know if I love Jesus. I tell him I want to love him, but I don't know if I, I don't show any emotions because I was an orphan and I don't know if I know how to love. And my second question is, if everybody goes to heaven, they're supposed to be happy. Why does it show the Blessed Mother crying all the time? Okay, well, very good questions. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, to love God, all right, it does not have to be a, uh, an emotional experience because, as St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, love is, is willing good to another. And when we love God, uh, it's our intellect and our will. It's not necessarily a feeling. It's not a passion. But certainly that can be part of it. But, um, you know, loving God in terms of being grateful for what he's done for us, wanting to spend eternity with him. You may not get the little warm fuzzy or, or the other uh, side effects of that, but that's not what's important. What's important is it's like um, how many times have a, a mother or father uh, loved their child and would do anything for him or her, but there's no reciprocation. The, the, the kid uh, doesn't uh, respond in the same way. Mm. Or the kid is, the child you know, is disrespectful in that. They still love him, all right, because that's their child. And so it's not a reciprocal love where I love you because you love me. Um, I love you uh, regardless of, of your response to me. Sure. And so our love for God is not contingent on what he's doing for us, but certainly that's a good motivation for us. And because you're, you're an orphan, um, that's, that's no reason why God doesn't love you. He loves you all the more, and your reason to love him uh, is not impeded by any sort of identification with uh, just uh, one or, or two people. So, yes, um, I, I think your love for God is real. Um, it may not be emotional or gooey, but that's okay. And we'll, I forgot what the second part of the question oh, was. That was, uh, why is Mary in, uh, oh, in, in yes. artwork depicted crying? Because that's the image of Our Lady of Sorrows. And it's not that Mary is sad right now, but she certainly had sorrows in her life. And, you know, the, Our Lady of Seven Sorrows, that was one of the parishes I was yes. at in um, Pennsylvania, in Middletown, Diocese of Harrisburg. Those seven sorrows Mary went through in her life. And, uh, you know, like the, being with Jesus at the foot of the cross having his lifeless body in her hands uh, as depicted in the Pieta um, when he was lost for three days in the temple, the flight into Egypt and so forth. These are real sorrows Mary experienced here on earth. And because of that, she can, uh, we can identify with her when we're going through our sorrows. She's not sad now because she's in heaven. She has the beatific vision. So she's not going to have that sadness. But she did while she was on earth in the same way Jesus experience uh, sadness and his passion and death uh, while he was uh, here on earth. God bless you, Irene. We really appreciate your phone call today to Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio on EWTN. Let's go now to Kay in Houston, listening on the great AM 1430 Guadalupe Radio. Kay, what's on your mind today? My, on my mind are the children that are in a state of uh, being frozen as embryos. My thoughts and prayers about their souls, their eternal souls, and why I don't ever hear from the pro-life uh, voices that are, thank God they're out there, telling us to pray consistently for unborn babies. 
you know, we put embryonic babies there on a shelf waiting to be claimed, like a consumer good and implanted uh, as persons with souls. Thank you, Father John. It's a horrible situation, isn't it, Father? It is. It is. It's very bad. And uh, um, because, as she said, you know, every embryo, as soon as the egg is fertilized, conception takes place, they have, there's an immortal soul. Yes. And that's a human being. And when you freeze them, <clears throat> if they're not dead, then they're in a you know, suspended animation, if you want to, for lack of better terminology. Mm. That means their soul is trapped. All right. It's not until death, when the soul is separated, that they can, you know, uh, God willing, uh, end up in heaven. So while they're frozen, if they're still viable in that regard, if, for whatever amount of time, um, you know, they're sort of like prisoners. Mm. Um, now the problem is we cannot then, you know, the ends never justifies the means. So you cannot take those embryos and just starting and planting them uh, into uh, people, into mothers, um, for the sake of saving the the embryos, because. You know, it's still an immoral procedure, and uh, yet you don't, you cannot destroy them. So we're in a very strong, uh, weird conundrum here. What do you do? And um, moral theologians, uh, experts at the Vatican, um, the Catholic Medical Association, and the, the Bioethics Center in Philadelphia—all these places are struggling. To f- you know, what would be the best solution? We we just don't have one right now. But what we can tell people is. In vitro fertilization is not the way to go. Uh, embryonic, uh, you know, freezing of embryos, uh, you know, imparting, implanting them later is not the way to go. Um, so it's best that people, you know, as she said, pro-life across the board, uh, not just uh, against abortion, but also against this embryonic uh, debacle that we're in. Okay, thanks so much for your call. Open Line Monday with Father John here on EWTN. A uh, question here from Lindy. What led the Church to define the Immaculate Conception? Okay, well, when Pope uh, Pius IX did that in 1854, it wasn't that the Church never believed that. <laughs> um, it, was, it has been the consistent teaching. I know sometimes people try to say that um, St. Thomas Aquinas was against it. He was not against the doctrine uh, of the Immaculate Conception. It was how it was being explained, because without it being solemnly defined, uh, in the Middle Ages, um, the concept was still there that Mary is free from original sin, but because his uh, physiology, um, the medicine, the, the science available to him back then uh-huh. was still very primitive, Aristotle and Plato and them believed that uh, you know human beings progressed uh, from being uh, vege- vegetative to animal, then human. Um, they didn't have the idea of knowing that there's a sperm and an egg and then human DNA actually uh, exists that once fertilization takes place and you have a conception, the DNA in the, in the embryo is uniquely different from that of the mother. Up to that point, her egg is, is her DNA in there. Uh, the, the father's DNA is in the sperm, but when they're put together and there's conception, it's unique. It's a, it's a totally different human being. Uh, they didn't know that back then. So you know, it's sort of guesswork of when does um, the human being start to exist. Because once the soul is infused, it's a human being. So due to their lack of, of precise science and medicine, they left it a little ambiguous. But there was no way that they were against this idea that Mary was free from sin from the first moment of her being human. And we now know that you're human from the moment of your conception. 
Lindy, thanks so much for your email. Mary in Dayton called, uh, that would be Dayton, Ohio, asking how many Eucharistic prayers are there and why, <laughs> and why isn't Mary listed first for intercession in each one of them? Uh, well, there's, um, there's the four standard ones, uh, the first one being the Roman canon, then you've got uh, Eucharistic prayer two, three, and four. Uh-huh. You also have, um, for reconciliation, uh, two of them. Uh, you have some Eucharistic prayers for special occasions. Um, there were some that they had developed for children's masses, but they're not in the Missal anymore. Okay. They're in a separate book. Um, so there's, there's a, a, a couple of them out there that, you know. Yeah. Um, and all of those that are recognized by, by the Holy See are, are legitimate. They're valid. They're licit. The ones that people typically hear in their parasol are either one, two, three, and four. Yeah. Um, those Eucharistic prayers, uh, they were developed over the centuries. Uh, our Blessed Mother, she is mentioned in there um, at different parts, depending on which of those Eucharistic prayers. Okay. I don't think she's given any less uh, honor. Um, she's certainly mentioned before all the other saints. So I don't know where you would else other otherwise could put her, but she is mentioned explicitly. And now since Pope Francis. Saint Joseph is included in all the Eucharistic prayers. Yeah. Previously, he was only in the in the Roman canon. Poor Joseph, what a <laughs> what a shame! I'm glad he's getting the props. I'm now. glad he got his uh, his rewards. Absolutely, it's uh, Open Line Monday with Father John here on EWTN. Let's go now to Mark in Texas. Mark is listening on the Great Guadalupe Radio. Mark, what's on your mind today? Yeah. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, Try to read non-Catholic sources on things. You know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I've read a couple of his books, and recently came across a very lengthy biography on Paul from E.P. Sanders, the, who's now deceased. He's a Protestant uh, biblical historian. And mm-hmm. it's stunning to me that Protestants have based an entire religion on something Paul never said in the Greek, um, saved by faith alone. And I don't want to get into the works versus faith, as James talks about, but I guess my question is, how many people understand that it was translated from Greek to Latin, and then, of course, to the first King James Bible, but why do so many Protestants insist on something St. Paul never said, number one, I'm talking about literally said, and number two, not understand that Paul's real argument was with the rabbis and the Jewish leaders of the day, versus you know what people? Why don't the Why don't Protestants understand that? And I, I have many Protestant friends, and I read this book, and I'm like, I don't think any of them have any idea just how mistranslated the Greek was. And I'd like to get the Father's opinion on how to a frame this conversation and b have a healthy dialogue because they they've got an entire religion based on something that Paul never really said or inferred. And I'll hang up and listen. Thing. Okay. Well, yes, I'm, it, it, it is a good insight, and. Um, Rather than being uh, antagonistic with with our our separated brethren, I would say, um, you know, part of the problem was the way in which Martin Luther and then later Swingley, Huss, uh, Cramner, and the other Protestant reformers, uh, how they put a spin on what uh, St. Paul said and certainly uh, even their reading of the the epistle of St. James. That's what happens when you don't have a magisterium. We have a single authority that uh, is, has the uh, responsibility but the sole authority to f- uh, interpret faithfully what the text uh, means. And they have not given a definitive interpretation to every single uh, text that's in Scripture, but those 
that uh, they have are considered uh, is considered infallible teaching, but there is no structure uh, in in the Protestant churches. Uh, if it's um, you know faith alone, if it's uh, um, grace alone, if it's uh, works alone, how do you decide if the text itself has either ambiguity or, as you point out, Saint James said it's not by faith alone. Saint Paul never uses the word alone in there. He certainly emphasizes the importance uh, of faith. So context is what's so important. And as Father Levis, my wonderful mentor, happy memory, used to say, when you take the text out of context, you have a pretext. Ah. So without a magisterial teaching authority, then you've just got quotes that can be interpreted a couple of ways. And uh, so I would say, yes, we need to go to the original Greek, but also the translation of, of St. Jerome into the Latin. And we have to rely, we need a magisterial teaching authority because the text itself doesn't even tell you what texts belong in the text. <laughs> yeah. Uh, without the table of contents that the publisher puts in there, how would we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the only Gospels and not the rest? Because Holy Mother Church says so. Yes, indeed. Mark, thanks so much for your call. We're going to close with this question now from Tim. Why does paragraph 2677 in the Catechism, why does that say that Mary is the, quote, all-holy one? My Protestant friend thinks it's evidence that we worship her. Yeah, I, I don't think that that, I mean, that's a stretch of, 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 of the text there. Mary's all-holy because she gave birth to the Son of God. Sure. And remember the angel uh, Gabriel said, uh, uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, que carito mene, uh, in the Greek, uh, uh, gratia plena in Latin. So if you are full of grace, full, like a glass is full, uh -huh. you can't put anything else in there. So if you're full of grace, there's no room for sin. And if you're full of grace, you're full of holiness. So all that is saying is that it's a fact. It's not that Mary did this herself. She's not the source of grace, but she was a vessel, container. So if the glass is filled by you, you or I, we put the water in there. Oh. It's still a full glass. The glass didn't do it itself, but it's a full glass, and Mary's full of grace. Tim, thanks so much for your question via email. Father John, could you leave us with your blessing, please? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Father John, thank you so much for all that you do for EWTN. We will hopefully see you next week at this time. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, tomorrow at this time, it's going to be Father Wade Menezes with Open Line Tuesday here on EWTN. For all of us on the program, I'm Tom Price. We will see you next time. Have a great one, and God bless.